0: The big vision is to really open up game creation to everyone. There's uh, lots of uh, talks out there like uh, Unity and Unreal. I heard Tom once uh, likened them to like
1: flying a jet aircraft. What's the aircraft analogy for construct? Oh, um, I don't know,
0: a bicycle maybe. (laughs) Just hop on and go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Oh gosh, it's hot. If
2: you're in the UK, I hope you've all been keeping safe and staying hydrated, of course, and checking in with those elderly and less able, because this week it's been topping 39 degrees. And if you're outside of the UK, we're not used to it. All right. We're not prepared. And it's been a scorcher.
1: Speaking of scorches, our previous episode with Blake Lemoyne has exceeded all expectations on YouTube, getting more than 10,000 views. So uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, hello. That was our first video episode, so you can expect a little bit more of that from now on. And actually, uh, if, you are, if you've only subscribed on YouTube, there's another 61 episodes, podcast episodes, audio only. So check those out. Get with the times. God. <laughs> uh, so who do we have on the show today? Well, today we have a a double trouble. We have Tom and Ashley, the creators of gaming platform Construct 3. Can you
2: imagine building a multinational computer game company with your brother?
1: I think most of us would just end up up fighting, wouldn't we? I certainly would. I
2: think so. uh, Well, and anyway, Tom and Ashley give us a wholesome grassroots insight into what it takes to growing a company from humble beginnings to one of the most popular game development platforms on the internet and how it became so popular in NASA.
1: <laughs> well, let's hear from Tom and Ashley.
0: My name is Ashley. I'm one of the founders of Skira and I work on developing Construct, the game creation software.
3: My name is Thomas. I'm the co-founder and Ashley's brother, and I work in business development and making the website in, in our startup.
1: Well, I didn't know you were brothers. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was going to ask you how you met, um, but <laughs> <laughs> how did you actually come together to start a business anyway? Well, I got the ball rolling in the early days.
0: I'd actually been working on an open source version of our game creation software called Construct Classic, for a few years and I was coming to graduate from my university course I was thinking about having to get a job and uh you know make money for once in my life and I was um reading a lot about Y Combinator and the startup scene in the US and uh, thought I'd give it a go start a company make a commercial version of our software and I realized I'd need a website and someone who um sort of probably cares a bit more about making money than I do <laughs> and uh Tom Tom had uh has quite a good track record of actually starting businesses from uh, ever since he was a teenager and uh he was my brother It's good to have someone you trust as a co founder so I asked him and I managed to drag him away from this uh was it a printing company who weren't paying you <laughs> so it wasn't i don't think it was too difficult to um get get him away from that does that does that sound accurate, Tom?
3: Yes, that sounds accurate. And uh, our, our customers are going to hate me when I say this, but um, Ash's original plan was to to make it pay what you want model. And I was like, No, Ash, we need to we need to charge charge money for this. And, uh, and that's how we started, basically.
2: There you go. Commercial mindset is really important, anyway. So, yeah, what year was all this happening?
3: We recently celebrated our 10 year anniversary. So we've been going just over 10 years and uh, we didn't have cake yet. So we need to have that soon.
2: Were you a HTML5 or ActionScript platform at that time?
0: So the early development work was done around 2011 and we went with HTML5, which at the time was a pretty controversial choice. There's a a lot of people saying, you know, Flash is a big deal. uh, That's the obvious choice. HTML5 is just a fad. I wonder where those people are now, because I'd just like to say I told you so to them. Ah. <laughs> but, but, but very petty of me, but, <laughs> but it's quite a big gamble, and it's, um, it's worked out incredibly well, far better than we hoped. Obviously, um, well, I don't know if everyone knows this, but Flash was finally fully retired around 2020, I think, and now HTML5 is just the uh, go-to
1: web sort of media technology Was it really that recently? Because I think they've been deprecating it for almost a decade, haven't they?
0: Yeah, but when you work in software and you try to get rid of something, you realise that you have all these uh, big customers who take years to do anything. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, like IE6, I suppose. <laughs>
2: yeah, taking stuff away in software always takes a long, long time. There was a, um, I think it's the South African government had a form set up, in action script that took all the election, uh, something to do with elections or voting or something, and they had that built because it was built in Flash and they didn't make it into HTML for some bizarre reason. Uh it's just a basic form. They had to like redo your browser. They had to like basically fork Edge or Chrome or something and launch a browser so you can actually still use their form because obviously all the other platforms are just deprecating Flash. So um it's hard to get rid of stuff. I mean, even even IE, yeah, like you say, Chris, even IE's just about dying or something i don't know
1: i think forking a browser seems like the wrong way to go about that solution but yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah definitely so who's who's the older brother then is that is that tom that'll be me tom yes yes i I was guessing by the fact that you had a a history and you had been working in in a a print company that wasn't paying you why weren't they paying you Uh, I think they just had some some money issues or something, but yeah. For my
3: <laughs> ever since I was I think about twelve, I've been making websites and um, I was very lucky. Very early on, I set up a uh, the first job I ever had was modifying forum software. So I'd add create plugins for forum software, and then I got an email one day and it said, um, "Hey, can you make these changes for us?" And I, was, I think I was fourteen or fifteen at the time, and I said, "I'm sorry, I don't have the unpaid time to do this." <laughs> then they emailed back said no problems how much do you want to charge i said a number i thought was ridiculous and they're like cool let's go and i ended up working on the official formula toyota formula one fan website yes that was very very good time and um it's slightly awkward when they phoned me up and my mum picked up the phone and said thomas uh there's <laughs> someone, someone weird on the phone for you and uh they like how old are you but oh, wow. I think it's nice looking back. If if we had the same experience in reverse, I think that'd be amazing. I think you know, someone that's entrepreneurial like that, I think is is, is nice. So um, yeah, that was the first job I had.
1: That's very cool. And and so, Ash, were you doing that sort of stuff as well before you went off to to study, or or did you had a slower introduction into software?
0: I had a slower and less profitable introduction to software. <laughs> really, so I started. But when I was a teenager, I was interested in making games myself and I, I would um, make this classic mistake of trying to create these huge colossal games with a massive scope when I didn't really know what I was doing and then struggle to uh, get anywhere with it. And then uh, I, I thought the answer to my problems in game creation was to make my own game creation tool, which I'd then make the game in. Uh, and I ended up working on this uh, Construct Classic, the open source version of the software. And so that was, that was around for about four years before we got to Construct 2. So I was just working in my spare time as a student, working on this open-source game creation software, which is a great way to learn. Uh, if you just write code and get it out there and have people using it, it's uh, an amazing way to learn. You get get real customers or well, real users, one way or another, and uh, make something for them. Then, uh, yeah, then that moved on to the uh, Construct Two, which we sold as a commercial product. Talking about
3: difficulty of retiring old products is very interesting. So I think Construct Classic's still being downloaded now. I think it's, <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it's still getting like a thousand downloads a month or something. It was re- retired in twenty twelve, like ten years
2: ago. Wow. So where are we now then? So we, we've we've formed a company, actually registered with HMRC and like formed this company back in two thousand and eleven. At this point.
3: Yes, yeah, we formed the company and we took on um, a small amount of angel investment very, very early on and, and not, not much, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge amount of money, but it's useful at the time to sort of uh, give us a safety net. And we were sort of in our bedrooms um, just working in the evenings and then we registered the company and um, started selling it and we were completely, had no idea how many we'd sell Ashley thought I was mad by saying we might sell 100 copies, I think I said.
0: Yeah, by Christmas. And by
3: Christmas. And then we ended up selling over 500 or something. So we're, we're very happy. But yeah, very, very, very small operation right at the beginning. And I think going back to, you know, talking about HTML5 technology, I think a, a key thing is the the product has grown with the technology. So Construct 2 was the first product, which was a Windows program it made html5 games and as the html5 technology improved we actually made the entire editor in html5 as well that makes html5 games so uh, as the technology's grown our products sort of evolved with it as well
2: Uh, under the hood then so what is that Were, were you developing your own libraries were you bootstrapping Kind of, you know, I'm assuming Construct now is as is a UI layer over the top of, you know, creating games. Am I right in saying that?
0: Yeah. So we've built our own. Um, we, we built our own library, really. So the game engine is uh, all our own custom code. Uh, we don't use any library for that, and it's the same with the editor. We don't actually use any kind of frameworks or, or UI libraries for that. It's all in-house developed by ourselves, which I think is an advantage in our case, because it's, especially going back to 2017 when that first launched, uh, it's a very specialist kind of thing. Game creation software, full desktop grade software, which runs in the browser and it gives us full control to make sure it works nicely.
3: The code base is quite substantial, isn't it, Ash? It's uh, hundreds of thousands of lines of JavaScript.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can't remember the last time I counted it, about 600,000
2: lines. Wow. I think. The, the first word that comes into my mind is is basically physics and that obviously being a bit of a you know a huge aspect to to games and stuff was this first version did it have physics were you were you iteratively launching like more advanced kind of aspects i mean you might have had physics from the beginning i just that just made me think about um kind of maybe how you might have iterated so did you launch with the kind of product that you were very happy with you were like okay let's get to this point launch that and then we've got this kind of backlog of all these features that we want to add a little bit later on
0: um construct has hundreds of features and it's uh it's always been challenging developing it because you've got thousands of customers who are all asking for different things and so you have to ruthlessly prioritize things. So in the early days, we focused on like simple 2D games where you can make like a platformer. Your player can run along and jump between platforms. And then, we, you know, we gradually over time, roughly in order of importance, we've tried to sort of add more and more on top of that. So uh, we've now even got some simple 3D features. Um, there's some uh, JavaScript coding features in there as well. There's some cool uh, visual effects and uh, some amazing stuff you can do with layer effects and stuff. Yeah, there's an awful lot there. And on physics specifically, uh, we do have a physics engine. We've had it from fairly early on. Uh, and now it's powered by WebAssembly. So it's very high performance as well. It's based on the Box2D engine. And the thing is, physics engines have uh, very high performance overhead. So uh, you don't have to use it. You can use a sort of simple calculator and stuff. instead.
3: I think our philosophy as a company as well is sort of release early, release often. We're sort of big believers in the minimum viable product. You know, we get friends, you know, friends and uh, come to us and say, you know, to launch this idea or people we meet. And we're always like minimum viable product is so important. Just get something out there quickly and then just iterate on that just constantly. We're, we're not scared of releasing new features on the website or in the products that, might not work a hundred percent perfectly, but we just want to get out the door and, and and keep going from there, basically. So I think we, you know, Construct Three. There's a new release weekly, and just always willing to test and and throw new things out there.
1: When you started out, then what what was the vision for what you were trying to create? Because obviously, creating these five, selling these five hundred copies, you know, that's going to be a big win for something. I mean, that was just you two, right?
3: Yes, that's just just me and Ash
1: and was that actually that the the foundation of this desktop engine to create html5 games
3: yeah that was that was what what launched us and then uh, sales continued basically for the next 10 years up to now just strongly so uh, that that's the seed that sort of launched us
1: that's an awful lot to do just for two of you i suppose to get to a, a saleable product
3: it is a huge amount of work yes <laughs> and uh luckily now- nowadays we have a, a bigger team we're still a small company there's about six of us that work um full-time at the moment so which is nice but even though we have six people working for us the workload still seems seems high and we're still working very hard both of us
0: uh, that that goes back to the importance of what tom said about the minimum viable product is we we released we released us uh, so early that it was actually kind of embarrassing the software really had very few features in it. It was actually difficult to make anything because there's so many things were missing. And our approach was just get it out there, start improving it, and uh then we'll worry about sort of which features we have later down the line.
1: How are you how are you upgrading and releasing then? If you you'd sold the you sold the product, but I suppose this is uh I mean how 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 were you selling it? Were you were you doing over the air upgrades, et cetera, to this or I think uh, on Vision, it is important to mention that uh, Construct allows
0: people to make games without programming. It's a drag and drop. And so it's designed, it's like PowerPoint for games. So you don't have to be technical. You can just drag and drop and build a game without doing any programming. Uh, You can also do JavaScript programming if you want to, but we sort of mainly market it as a drag and drop game engine. And the big vision is to really open up game creation to everyone. So if you're an artist or a designer, Or, like a a kid in a school, and you've got an idea for a game, it makes it possible to do it. And of course, there's uh, lots of uh, talks out there like uh, Unity and Unreal. But they, uh, I think I heard Tom once uh, mention at a conference, he likened them to like flying a jet aircraft. There's just so many controls, so many options. It's like uh, you think about the cockpit of those jet airliners with buttons everywhere.
1: So where where do you come in in the analogy then what's what's the aircraft analogy for construct <laughs> Oh um I don't know a bicycle maybe <laughs> just just hop on just hop on and go
2: <laughs> <laughs> What was um what was the market like at this point then who was out there in and sort of what were they doing that was um that you wanted to kind of overthrow or that you wanted to differentiate yourself like what was the landscape like at this point So, you know, I think we want
0: to differentiate ourselves by making it incredibly easy. So we want, like, simple software, which doesn't overwhelm you, uh, easy to use. Like like I say, like PowerPoint, you don't have to have training in PowerPoint to use the basics. You can just sit down, throw a presentation together and just figure it out as you go. And we'd like the same thing to be possible with our software. And that's, uh, that's slightly underselling it. It's got tons of really great features, but that's the principle behind it. That's the way in, and then you can obviously go a long way with it as well. And I think, you know, I'm very passionate about web technology, and I think I really wanted, I felt like the thing I've got to prove is that web technology is great, browsers are great, and they can do really good games as well. And that's always been a key differentiating factor for for us. We've always been web only. Browser technology runs all our games on all platforms. And we've always resisted, um, even to quite a lot of pressure in the past, making native engines, which would open a huge sort of technical can of worms and really make development far, far more complicated, uh, which as a small company is just probably infeasible
3: I think it's interesting. It's, it's quite a balancing act because the engine is sophisticated, but we're trying to keep you know keep to that vision of keeping things simple so I think talking about the landscape of other products I think we've seen some of our competitors start marketing towards you know easy game development but they add so many features they start going towards the 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 fighter jet cockpit sort of style almost by accident so I think it's very very key in our minds to make sure that's not the route we go and uh, this is our niche and that's where we are
2: quick one then what just to clarify when you say you know brought on to build the website are you refer, when you say website are you referring to the platform itself or are you talking because i I just think marketing website whenever when when i hear that
3: yeah so what's what we've always thought was very important very early on is uh, when ash had construct classic it already um built a community of users who are using that software so that's why we could get those 500 sales very early on because there's there's people that know new ash made a game engine and even though the product was rough and ready they they believed in the process they believed the future um so very key to us was to sort of maintain and keep that community and and the way we did that is we we our website isn't just a marketing by you, you, nowadays the trend is you have a very simple website and it's sort of marketing by by now and our website's far more community based so we have a arcade where people can upload and and show their games which we see as a a, a nice marketing platform Um, we have a forum we have an asset store where people can sell their their assets to other users and also with construct three now because it runs in the browser the website is quite integral in how the products actually launched and distributed Um, whereas before it's just a simple download now it's far more tied into the website and i think um it's interesting because This sounds trivial, but if something's difficult to do, we always see that as an opportunity where maybe our competitors won't be bothered to do it. So we see that as an opportunity. So it's a very simple example. You go to a lot of websites where you sign up for an account. And then if you want to use the forum, you have to use another account. Um, And there's there's a lot of friction there. And I find that very irritating. So we've really spent a lot of time making everything mesh together really nicely and, and no hiccups
0: like that. Um, And the
3: website is a huge, huge project. And um, that's what I try and spend most of my time on now.
0: I feel like Tom doesn't always get enough credit um, because I I work on the sort of the product of the game creation software. And Tom does pretty much everything else, uh, which is, I think, like there's two halves to the business. There's the half of the product that you see and the half of the website and all the services behind it that aren't always as visible. Um, and Tom's been toiling away on those for years, uh, and not always getting as much credit for it. So, <laughs> just want to big you up there, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think one of the, one of
3: the biggest pain points for us, and it still is today, is tax and VAT is incredibly complicated, especially when you're selling small transactions like we do worldwide. It is an absolute nightmare, and there's not really any products. I think it might be different now, but definitely back. You know, five years ago, there's no sort of accounting packages that would sort of do all the VAT for you. And it's, it's such a huge pain point. We, we've solved it now, but it took a lot of, a lot of work. And especially at Brexit, it just throws the spanner in the works again. And
0: I think we've sold to like 100 countries, haven't we, Tom? What, yeah,
3: at least, at least 100 countries. Yeah. yeah
0: it's an interesting thing about software is you, you can sell to any country in the world, but then you have to deal with like the tax of anywhere in the world, which can be a, a complicated. And uh, even I think we've even had to sort of like look up U.S. sanctions lists and make sure we're not accidentally selling into any countries not (laughs) want to. Wow.
2: So, I mean, I mean, we're a tech show, so we're not going to get too much into the tax, But I'm sure our (laughs) listeners would be really interested to know because startups and all the rest of it would be selling to um, multiple countries and stuff like that. So. Short and sweet then. So what generally, what is this issue with tax? Do you have to abide by individual tax laws of the places that are the jurisdictions that are buying your software?
3: Yeah, so, so every country in the EU will have a different tax rate, but also the tax rate can depend on what sort of customer you are. If you're an individual business, it's different as well. And since Brexit, you have to fill out a, your, your I won't go into it too much because it's not, it's not very <laughs> interesting. And I've lost track. We've, we've, I've, I've offloaded that to our managing director now, which is good. So I hear the complaints, but I'm less involved now, but it's, it, it's incredibly complicated. And especially if you're in the, if you're a tech business in the UK selling worldwide, it is a big pain point. And, um, I, my advice would be if, if that's what you're going to be doing is really understand the rules and really sort of nail that very early on because it just gets, Worse and more complicated the, the longer you leave it. We get invoices from the Italian tax authority saying we owe them three euros twenty p because we <laughs> worked we worked it out just slightly wrong at some point, so they're all on it. And um,
2: <laughs> and this is made extra hard by the small transactions because. Uh, it's just more volume of, so for
3: more volume for bookkeeping and reconciliation, it's just, just adds volume. It'd be a lot easier if we sold the product for £10,000 a time once off, um, but we sell for, for different amounts in different countries. So, for example, in India, we, we're we trying to stimulate sales by, by really reducing the price. So you might have hundreds of transactions that are £2 each.
2: So then, on that note, what's what is and piracy is probably going to be a bit of an issue for. Well, maybe is an issue or a topic of conversation. But what's to stop someone VPNing themselves into India and getting those games at a low price?
3: Yep. So I can't. Uh, I can't divulge all our secrets. But mm-hmm. it's on when. When you make a sale, you have the the card company will often give you very strong clues as to the origin of the customer. We also have our own some some technology that also hints to the origin. So it's quite obvious to us when someone's purchasing it from a place that they're not permitted to. And then we sort of deal with it on the on that basis.
2: Did you learn that the hard way or the easy way?
3: Uh by design, just just the easy way actually. Yes, it was it wasn't difficult, no.
1: But I suppose things like like tax—that's probably slightly the hard way. As you go, oh my god, we've got a load of things we've got to deal with that we hadn't expected.
3: Yes, that that was made uh, very hard mode by Brexit and all these all these changes uh, made that very difficult. Yeah.
1: So I bet you're glad you're you're not dealing with that now. Then it's the managing director. I'm very happy I'm
3: not <laughs> dealing with that. Hello,
1: Roger. Thank you for dealing with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is there any advice then for anybody who's in this sort of situation of starting to sell internationally? Hire a manager, director.
3: Roger's <laughs> <laughs> phone number yeah. Give Roger in. No. Um, I think. I think the the products, the accounting software out there has come on a long way now. So I think you need to re you need to understand the problem. I think then you need to research so- a solution that fits for you, and really find a nice a nice match as early as possible.
2: So moving then swiftly on to you're t- you said you're a team of six now, right? Yeah when when did um hiring decisions start to to take shape in in the company and and what was that experience like
3: that's very that was a very interesting experience for us so once construct two was selling well we we realized what would be really great is to have another employee working alongside ash sort of accelerate the the growth of the product and as you know, as two young people working at, we had an office at that point, a very simple office. But that that proposition was absolutely petrifying for us. We had no idea what we're doing. We didn't know that we wanted to do things properly. We didn't want to break any rules. So we thought maybe we need some assistance in sort of this step. So we actually thought it might be good to take on a manager or someone to guide us. And uh, we started looking, and we were introduced to. Before we met Roger, we were introduced to some sort of headhunting VC firms who sort of match made to you with some um uh, managers, and um that didn't work out because it was enormously expensive. I think these these companies were sort of, uh, you know, they're expecting a six figure salary and a six figure finders fee and we're just like okay this is the wrong way to do it so we went back to the the drawing board and we're scratching our heads and we had a family friend who runs a business and he says oh I know this uh this guy called Roger who's who's looking for a change he might be a good match and so Roger came in we met him and we got on really really well as a sort of trial he helped us recruit our first employee Diego uh, which went really well and he and and Roger gave us a lot of confidence to sort of grow in this way. That went well and we thought it'd be really great to take Roger on at that point. And um that's how we started the hiring process. But it's very it's very scary. You know, going from two people to three people is is scary. You know, going from three people to six people is a big step. And I read about this with bigger companies, you know, going from six to twenty is is enormously scary as well. And twenty to hundred, you know, there's big stepping stones which are, are very difficult to um to to manage and also i think as a small team you know when you take a hire you're sort of adding 50 percent manpower to the team with one recruit so it's absolutely essential that that person is really skilled at their job you know if you take someone that isn't isn't really pulling their weight in a in a much bigger company that can sort of blend in with a small company it just it just can't work
1: so that must have been quite difficult then to to sort of figure out whether this person that you were going to hire was going to be effective.
0: It's, it's interesting. We learned a lot. And you can tell a lot from an interview sometimes. But other times, uh, you know, it, it can be tricky. Uh, you can you can interview someone who seems really great and then maybe they're not the right fit as well. Uh, and I've read a lot about this and I think my conclusion is no one really understands how to hire perfectly <laughs> <laughs> that. and uh, ultimately what, when they sit down and start doing the work for real is when you find out if they're good for the job or not that's why
2: probation periods exist yeah.
1: yes <laughs> I, I would I would agree with you on that I mean we've done we've done quite a lot of uh, conversations with you know various recruiters um, and various people who are doing recruiting and I mean, I was counting it up and I think I've done maybe a thousand interviews now, wow. uh, which is ridiculous, frankly. And um, I think there's there's a lot of a lot to be said for bad interviewing techniques that need to change. I think an interview, you know, especially for a tech one, you should always come out with everybody feeling like they've learned something. And so the thing that really, bo- you know, bothers me about like tech interviews specifically is when... People get asked random questions about an API, for example, that they may they have on Google that they can look up, or you know they um, they get walked out of the door or something like that. You know, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And I think everything should be about creating like a good candidate experience. And I've been doing um, also the other thing that really bothers me as well is like when you get like a refactoring test or something like that. It's not a good idea to give. For, for the first impression for your company to be here is a piece of shit code we'd like you to look at like <laughs> you know that's not a good thing for the candidates <laughs> but um no i think there's so many different so many different impressions and i've certainly made hiring decisions that i thought were good decisions that you only learn in the once they're actually on the ground and doing the work as to whether they're any good or not and i think um i think it's really difficult so i suppose it doesn't matter if you've done a thousand interviews or ten or none You know, you you kind of have to go on the the feel and the relationship you create with people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I am not sure if it's different in different industries, but uh, uh, what we think is, you you take uh, someone, a programmer, on, and we usually wouldn't expect them to do much productive for four or six months. You know, they're sort of learning the code base and learning how things work. So, as an outlay for a small business, that's that can is extremely risky process. You know, because you can be six months down the line before you realise. Maybe the, technically this isn't working.
1: Yeah, and and new new code bases are quite difficult to learn, especially if they're um or six hundred thousand lines long that like you said. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. You, one does not simply walk into a six hundred thousand line code base <laughs> and change
1: whatever you like. Um, that sounds like a meme to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're always talking about Webflow. So, <laughs> what is Webflow?
2: Well, Webflow is a platform completely online, completely in the browser that allows you to build websites using no code, zero code. I mean, it, it has the potential to build low code websites, that's low code, but there's real power is in the no code way of building websites. I don't know, it's fantastic. A lot of designers, I would say, have actually built their careers off of webflow which is really powerful really because a lot of them didn't weren't able to offer this kind of service so designers are picking up webflow and building their whole careers being able to design a website and then being able to actually implement it and earn a great living off of building webflow websites so you want to start up a a new company or bought your domain name through namecheap.com affiliate link down below in the description then you can link that to a Webflow website and um, start designing, start building a website with absolutely no code. And they do also have a templating library as well, so you can go out and buy a template to get started. And my first Webflow website was built, I kid you not, four hours.
1: So if you want to uh, code along with Sam, then you can click the affiliate link that we have in our description for this episode, wherever you're listening to it. Or you can head over to thattech.show and take a look at the affiliate links there and click through to Webflow. And by doing that, you're going to be giving something back to that tech show because we get a little bit of kickback when you click that button. There you go. No excuses.
3: Going back to interview techniques though and i to i totally agree with what you're saying. I think the relationship is number one and um what we have found you know contrary to to sort of um forward thinking advice we've read online about interview techniques, we have actually found that short exams have been incredibly revealing so we generally in an interview we' we'll have a uh, nothing nothing too onerous or sort of something you can finish in ten minutes maybe uh and we found we we've avoided recruiting decisions based on that test because a lot of people talk very well um and when you give them a simple coding task it falls flat on their face and um going back to before maybe that person would fit better in a big corporate where it's you know there's there's more more assistance but f- but for us that's that's a no go at this early stage so that's 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 been a useful tool for us
0: People do make the point that all programmers have uh, like Google and web searches to look things up, but it's very revealing. I think still, if you give someone a very simple function to write and they don't get it right, I think it's, quite, it's, a, it's a signal, one of many signals.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I did an interview just the other day where I said that, you know, it is open book. I will allow you to Google things. And, you know, there was a fair amount of Googling, but um, they got the job. <laughs> because it, you kind of want to see how they google right because i think a lot of programming is often um how good you are at, fi- at using google to find the source of your problem is stack overflow driven development
3: yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely we i'm i'm not sure i'm speaking for you Ash, but every day using google and stack overflow yeah absolutely important is how how you solve the problem is is important and it's you know it's uh, not exactly what you've memorized and when we do these little quizzes we, we do bear that in mind yeah
1: and so is is the plan then to sort of grow much more than the six then is that is that part of an expansion plan i think
3: as we currently stand we're very happy with the the size of our team i think it, it's a, a good size for the size of our company um but we are trying to grow in education more so there's a a lot of um, schools really like using Construct because it's it teaches programming concepts in an engaging way. Instead of just giving students a, a notepad and say let's write some Python, that's not much fun. I wouldn't find that much fun either.
1: So was was that always kind of the goal to be completely um, you know drag and drop, as you mentioned earlier?
3: I think it yes, it absolutely was the original goal. But as you know. Going back to education, when very early on we had schools contacting us saying, oh, I want to buy this for my school. How can I do that? So we created special plans for schools. And then the the demands from the the school part of our customer base kept growing and growing. Then they have additional demands um, or, or requirements. So one of them would be I want to write code. So we've resisted that for quite a few years, um, but it was uh, we saw it as a real value add and you know adding the ability to write JavaScript in your in your game is a, is a real value add for the schools. So we always have a very firm vision of where we're going, but we the, the sort of ship gets steered slightly guided by customers the way as we go along.
1: So with the uh, with with the the stuff with the schools then was the original thing. I mean, what what were they wanting to do? Were they wanted to teach the the kids about design initially before there was any any coding in there?
3: Yes, I think the the very early school customers were running after school clubs on make your make your first video game basically. So it's very sort of forward thinking and explorative. Teachers would you know take up new interesting products and and use them in after school clubs and that that was where it all started and then from I think mainly from word of mouth um, classrooms started buying it as a way to because although it's drag and drop you can still teach the principles of coding through drag and drop you know loops variables um, functions so they saw that as a sort of interesting way of introducing students in a classroom setting to the principles of programming and then the demand then became well we want to actually teach them how to code so that's why the JavaScript,
1: yeah, I have a, a brother who's twelve years younger than me, who's probably listening, actually. So, hello, Stefan. Um, <laughs> so he, <laughs> he, he um, I remember him using Scratch, you know, where it was kind of drag and drop of like loops and variables and things like that to create small games and things. So, do, do you simplify some of that in the coding, or I mean, how does it how does it work within the engine itself?
0: So, um, I'd say our block based system is like halfway between Scratch and programming. So a lot of schools would get students started on Scratch. Uh, Scratch is is good for what it does, but it's quite a simple uh, approach. Um, It's based around like puzzle pieces. It's quite colorful. You can sort of snap your bricks together and uh, set up your game logic that way. Uh, Constructs, a bit more sophisticated, more sort of like secondary school age. um, I don't know the US equivalent of that, if you have US listeners. Uh, In the UK, it's... It's like from 13 plus would be a good age for... We uh, like to
1: make it an activity podcast so the, uh, the listeners in the US or various other parts of the world can go and look up what secondary school is. As equivalent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, um, that's the, the British term. Yeah, so you start off with Scratch. It's like puzzle pieces you put together, move on to uh, constructs, uh, what we call event block system, which uh, you can do a lot more logic, a lot more sophisticated things with it and use it to make a game. And then, you know, some people want uh, to get good with Construct and they're familiar with it. They then might move on to um, programming in uh, JavaScript, in Construct or programming in other tools. And, you know, some people sort of do graduate onto using Unity and their, their sort of heavyweight tools in the market. And I think that's a success for us because we've helped sort of train someone and uh, move them along their way in their journey in the game creation world.
1: So that is like a defined gap, I suppose, in the market. Then was is, were there other competitors around doing that similar sort of step, or you know, do you feel like you just do it differently?
0: You're right. It, it's a very good gap, and I think I think we're, we're quite unique in filling that gap because previously we heard a lot of teachers saying that they would start with Scratch, which is like puzzle pieces you put together, and then they'd move on to Python programming in a terminal. And you think that that is a a real big jump to make, and you can uh, sort of I think a lot of the students will suddenly find that a very difficult step to make. So yeah, I, I think Construct is good for sort of filling in that gap and
1: helping join things like Scratch to Unity. Yeah, I think you were underselling yourself before when you were talking about that uh, the, the the plane analogy from the jet. I mean, I think Scratch has got to be the bicycle, surely. Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Programming in the terminal, maybe that's the prop plane. Maybe at least you're the <laughs> glider in the middle. I guess. I mean, <laughs>
0: glider good
1: one. I like glider. Why,
0: yeah let's be a glider then <laughs> to be honest I don't know I don't know what the controls to a glider look like so I, I may come to um regret that but
1: yeah um it's, it's mostly a joystick I'm sure but you know hopefully hopefully we'll have some pilots uh flying in writing in to uh to, to let us know whether we got that right or not <laughs> so who, who else are satisfied customers for you folks then other than um other than schools
3: so we've we've sold to some uh, big companies, which we're thrilled when when it happens. So uh, EA Games have bought licenses from us, Sega, Zynga, and King, and also NASA. Wow. And we think NASA are using it as a, a teaching tool in some of their facilities. We hope they're not launching rockets with it because <laughs> that would concern us slightly.
1: If they get like a little graphic that you've created to you know s- describe the rocket's trajectory, that would be fantastic
0: <laughs>
3: that would be that would be fine, yes, yeah,
0: <laughs> I do remember seeing I think some some old uh, terms and conditions in old software would uh, specifically say you're not allowed to use the software to run uh, nuclear reactors uh presumably to sort of just rule out the possibility that they're implicated in a nuclear disaster.
3: Roger, if you're listening, we need to add that in,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if we should do the same thing about uh people's space programs, but uh. But you, you just you just listed off a couple a few customers there, a few high profile ones. I noticed that they were all generally gaming companies except for NASA.
3: Yeah. So the the gaming companies we think use it for um prototyping. As far as we can tell, they're not actually building production games in it. So I think I, I I'm I'm making a few assumptions here, but companies like Zinger and King might have uh, sort of hundreds or maybe even thousands of artists who are sort of putting games together. So we think maybe they're Allowing the artists to sort of prototype ideas and you know show their work in in an easy way, Um, and NASA NASA was a really was great selling to NASA. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. It's a it's a nice name to to put out there. And, and we we think that's more in the education sort of category because from what we understand, NASI run education camps, coding camps. They do a lot of sort of outreach like that. It's actually incredibly difficult to, you, you can sell to a big company, but it's incredibly difficult to actually work out what they're using it for. You can send an email saying, welcome to Construct. I'm one of the founders. We're thrilled you're using our software. Can you just give us a bit of insight of what you're using it for? And generally you get nothing back.
1: Well, that's a shame.
3: It is It is a big shame. And also we sell at the, we were going through a a sales process with Facebook. We're interested in buying some licenses from us. What's really interesting is for a small company like us, these big companies put a huge burden on the startup sometimes to to actually sell a license. They'll send you, you know, sometimes a 12 page form about how you, uh, you know, where you keep your backup discs overnight and, huge huge i can't overstate how big these forms are and it's a, it's a massive burden for a small company like us because at the end of filling out this form that might take a couple of hours they go actually no we don't want to buy or oh great yes here's uh, here's 100 pounds a year so it's it's a it's a very difficult burden but it is a foot in the door of these big organizations that is valuable to go through
2: uh changing tack just a little bit then so uh you know your platform, your service, your, your, your business um, operates obviously the... I'm taking a look actually at the asset
1: store right now. So you're actually selling assets that people can use. In there. Is that why you've been quiet, Sam? You've been on the website. Have you been playing games? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: But also you obviously sell the games themselves. Uh, Elon Musk recently commented on the 30% fee That Apple take for their kind of App Store kind of purchases and whatever, and he says it's equivalent to like daylight robbery or something. So I don't know whether you saw that. What's your what's your kind of fee system like on your store, and how how did you reconcile that? Obviously, you know, one of you wanted to give these games away, pay as you want, and then the other was like, no, we need to charge for it. So obviously, there's. um, morally there's people stand in different areas when it comes to what what does one deserve when when you provide a platform versus sell the sell the asset or the game or whatever so how did that kind of story unfold and where do you stand on that you've made a, a, an interesting point which is very difficult to answer <laughs> um,
3: because we do charge 30 percent in our asset store now i think the, the difference is is the amount of time we've invested in in the asset store is significant and the amount of resources we've invested in it. So probably to date, we've probably run the asset store at a loss. You know, looking, it's a long-term endeavor. And you've picked out you've something very good, yeah. I, th-
0: I think the, the key differentiation between, say, us and Apple and Google, who charge a uh, 15 to 30% fee on all their app sales and payments, it's about competition, really. So you can publish to our asset store and we, we do take a cut. But you're free to tell other people that your assets are available elsewhere. Uh, you're free to sell them elsewhere. Uh, you can sell them yourself and uh, manage your own payment system if you prefer to. And these are all things which, you know, Apple and Google, and particularly Apple, really like, have stringent rules to prevent you doing that. Uh, so if you publish an app to the app store on iPhone, depending on how big a company you are, they'll take 15 to 30 percent of your revenue. You're not even allowed to tell them that they can buy it anywhere else, like through the website. You're not even allowed to set up your uh, own payment system or, or inform your customers about any, any of the alternatives. And you can get kicked off the App Store if you break the rules. Uh, and I think these are incredibly onerous, stringent rules, which essentially impose a tax on everyone for no reason, uh, with no alternatives to work around it. And at the scale of Apple and Google, this is not something you can work around either. You have to just deal with it. So I think that's um, I think that's uh, a really bad thing for the software industry. It's bad for independent individual developers, small companies. who lose a lot, a big chunk of their revenue to these billion-dollar tech corporations, and, and there's very little they can do about it. So yeah, you know, it, it does. Uh, I see your point where you know we take a cut on our own asset store. You know, is it that we do the same thing? And I, I say no because uh, there's plenty of alternatives for people who sell in their asset store.
1: They can do what they like. I think there's a difference here as well in the sense that, you know, the assets that you're selling are produced in your software, right?
3: Not always, no. So you oh, really? We have people that sell sound effects. We get a lot of people who sell uh, sound effects packages on our asset store, and you'll see them in every other asset store on the web as well. So, it's, you know, w- with a game, there's so many types of media you can add to it, you know, graphics, sound effects, backgrounds, animations. So uh, it, it's just all of those, all of those, basically, not necessarily made in Construct 3.
1: The thing with the Apple Store and the and uh, the and well, the App Store and uh, the Play Store, for example, though is I believe that they would take the, well, certainly the App Store used to take payments for micro payments within the app, within the app. They used to take a percentage for the for the micro payments as well. I am not sure if that's still the case, but I certainly remember years ago working on um, on the the Amazon Prime Video apps that we didn't have any purchase options in the app because if the purchase was made through the App Store, you had to give thirty percent to Apple which was insane, I think.
0: Yes, that's it. That's the workaround is you just don't sell anything in the app. We've avoided ever publishing construct to uh, the app stores, um, so we don't have to pay such um, such a tax. It's easier for us, though, because it's sort of mostly desktop-based software. But, yeah, there are sort of some tricky workarounds around you can pay through the website and then use it your account in the app, but you're not allowed to offer payment in the app or tell them that they can do that. Uh, and, yeah, they're just incredibly stringent rules. And I think like one of the most egregious examples I saw was uh, I think some regulators have required that Apple and Google allow developers to take their own, use their own payment system. So you can use Stripe or PayPal and take your own payment for the app from, from the App Store. So they've been required to do that by regulators. And then what they did is they said, OK, you're allowed to do that. But when you do that, uh, we're going to send you an invoice for 27% of the value of the payment, which you took yourself using your own payment system uh, because it came from the app store. And I'm, I'm like, who do they think they are? It's like, <laughs> we're you know, we not saying to our asset creators that if they sell them anywhere else, we're going to invoice them for 27% because they came from our website or anything. I think that's
1: crazy. So this is Monopoly though, isn't it? It's, it that's- exactly.
0: Yeah, and, and they have a monopoly on mobile apps. So uh, you have to deal with that. Or you can publish your app as a web app. Um, that's the, the other workaround is uh, web publishing is all free. You can manage it yourself. The average payment gateway will take like 2 or 3%. Uh, that's the overhead for dealing with payments, which is much lower. But then you have to set up your own payment gateway. So, you know, they do offer the convenience of ha- taking the payments for you. But I don't think there's any case for them to
1: charge more than like 5%. We also need people to find you on the internet as well, and that's real hard work, isn't it? You know?
3: Yeah, I think these big app stores have a monopoly on the discovery of apps as well. I think that's a big part of that.
1: Yeah, my big thing that I'm on at the moment is the fact that we're kind of at the end. It feels to me like we're at the end of the monopoly game, you know, where you've got a couple of big players that have got all of the money. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do I do wonder if that's sort of the natural way everything goes in life, you know, you know, in business. So you know, it all just conglomerates into monopolies eventually.
1: Who knows? I did read that apparently, I mean, this is off, well, I suppose maybe it's not off topic because we're still still talking about games, but um, apparently when Monopoly originally came out, there were two ways to play it. There was the capitalist way and there was a socialist way. And the capitalist way actually ends completely, as we all know. That's the game we play when we play Monopoly. And you can't play the other version because it was was supposed to be a teaching game to show you how bad capitalism was. (laughs) So I have a question, right? You've obviously poured your
2: heart and soul into developing your own you know physics engines and and everything that's kind of working behind the scenes for people to be able to create the games have you have you got any ambitions or anything to kind of open source that or or you know productize any kind of modules from that at all because you've obviously got things what are what are the big gaming engines now i mean no i actually don't know any uh, Unity and Unreal are sort of two of the big sort of main engines used for commercial games. I'm thinking more JavaScript libraries, to be honest. There's there's some JavaScript libraries that you can use to obviously create sprites and get basic games and stuff like that. And that's when I asked you earlier about like are you are you bootstrapping anything? And you responded with no, it's all bespoke. You know, those are the sorts of libraries I was thinking of. And have you ever thought about dabbling in that and and open sourcing even under a different brand? Even even like you know. Bit of pocket money, <laughs> bit of pocket money off the side there, just to uh, just to kind of just sell a few modules or, uh, like I say, a physics engine or something like that. Because if, if you built something very bespoke, it's obviously very um, wow. Well, it'd be it'd be good to try and monetize that as much as you can, right?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting idea. There's always a lot of possibilities. Uh, it's always firstly there's sort of two sides to this. There's like, do you want to open source things and do you want to spin off uh, sort of other side businesses? And there's uh, good options for both. Uh, I'm, I'm always quite sort of open to the idea of open sourcing bits and pieces, but it's difficult um, both commercially because you want to make sure you've got a unique product uh, with unique selling points and that your competitors aren't just sort of importing your code and using your work in their product. And also like running a proper open source project involves good governance and sort of merging uh, contributions and, and dealing with uh, a few bug reports and, and such which is extra work, which uh, time time is in short supply for us. So, uh, and, and for a similar reason, really, it's hard to spin off uh, sort of other commercial side businesses, even though we've, we've had lots of ideas for them over the years. We just don't have enough time. <laughs> time is by far our most limited resource. We're, all, we're both working flat out uh, enough to get sort of quite, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone who works um, deals with stress and burnout and things from time to time. There's a lot of pressures with running your own business as well. And the idea of like doing a spin-off, it sounds tempting. And I just don't think we have the time or the resources to fill it off. So it's good to choose to, to pick your battles and focus and try and do one thing and do it, do it well, especially when you're a small company or a startup,
2: uh, you, you have to sort of focus. See, I cannot take that advice. I'm just too, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, oh shiny. I, I stayed up last night and redesigned my website. Cause I just got excited about it. And it's like, yeah. I just, I just pick up things and, I know I should focus, but you know I'm sim- I'm similar. And uh, con- the Construct website
3: is one of the first things in my life I've really just poured everything into. And I- I'm very similar. I'm I'm easy to pick up new things and and start new things. But I think you know even though we're talking about not doing a spin off, I always thought one really interesting possibility in the future would be the the HTML UI library uh, we've built. That would be a really interesting separate product, or maybe some sort of open source, quasi open source projects where you know where people could build applications in in the browser because there are options out there but they they tend to get bloated and i think we've got something quite special with with what we've built
2: so on that ui front what's your focus if any on user experience when it comes to because you obviously want to have something that's very very easy to build obviously it's Succeeding, obviously, schools want to use it. NASA wants to train their to train their engineers on it. There's obviously a great user experience there. Where did that inspiration come from? And, and do you have someone specifically dedicated to that?
0: Well, I think in, in the terms of the software usability, that's something I, I I'm, I'm not a specialist in user experience, um, but it's something I've worked a long time in, and it's something I'm passionate passionate about. I'm keen to make software which is really easy to use, intuitive and makes it clear how to use it and um, if anything's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong. Uh, I've always thought you can probably measure the quality of software in any ever messages. I'm probably going to get tweeted a bunch of unclear me- ever messages and Construct now. <laughs> I've said that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it's something I'm passionate about. I, something I've always been passionate about is software quality, and there's a lot of rubbish software out there. Everyone's seen it. Everyone's used it. Everyone's been driven mad by it. And uh, so I've always been driven by this idea that I want to make something that's really nice, like a polished, nice to use piece of software that is easy to use and difficult to go wrong and such. Of course, the practice is, uh, that's the ideal, but the practice of it is incredibly difficult. And even now we're sort of fixing bugs and sort of little corners of the software where things are confusing or don't work very well that, that customers get in touch with us. And, you know, I'm passionate about making sure we try and fix all the bugs and everything, but it's just endless, endless. And I, I think I, I fear for the fate of the software industry, but I wonder if maybe it just can't be done. You know, there's two types of software. There's like NASA's have a thousand people who incredibly carefully check the software for their Mars rovers to make sure they absolutely definitely will completely work no matter what. And even then, some you know, there's that case where someone mixed up centimeters and inches and the thing
2: just bombs into the
0: surface of Mars. And then all other software just doesn't work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well that's a perfect place to plug our code in space episode with uh, rakesh we actually spoke to a a an engineer who went through this kind of basically three times testing of of code that goes through on on the various uh, satellites and, and rovers and various things like that. But yeah, I know no, I commend you. I mean, it's obviously, like I say, natural talent is obviously paying off because people are able to use it. You are succeeding in that simplicity. But to do all that, Whilst thinking of the tech, uh, the tech side as well, it, that's just a lot going on. You know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I really care about the usability. You know, um, my first foray into that is like CMS be a building a CMS. People just think a CMS is just there to put in the data, but it's like, no, no, no. You're designing for two people here. You've got the front end, you've got the CMS. you need to think of that user experience and make it as simple as possible and having stuff that doesn't work. And it's just, yeah, it's just a lot going on when you're when you're responsible for the tech side as well. So yeah, nice. I think what's really
3: important to us is when we move construct into the browser so it runs fully in the browser. It has, you know, there's this whole image of software that runs in the browser just being in crap, basically. You know, it's slow. You click a button, you have to wait. And what's key for us is we have to make, this is productivity software. It has to be responsive. It has to feel like a native Windows program. You know, you click on something, it's instant. So that was a huge focus. And um, there's enough bad web software out there.
0: Yeah, that's a point, kind of a point we want to
1: prove, that, you know, you can make great software on the web so that's the difference between construct 2 and construct 3 then right
0: yeah construct 2 was a windows desktop app uh, So you'd have to like download and install it and it would only work on windows and couldn't run it on mac or anything else and construct 3 is all in the browser so it just just loads straight away you don't have to install anything
3: when we first started sorry when we first started selling construct 3 is is really interesting a lot of customers were like oh, oh no in the browser horrible and then we um we get emails from people that's those same people a month later saying I absolutely love it, and I forget I am using it in the browser, and it's like that's great. That's that's what we're going for, so that's that's really good.
1: And so, have you found that the customer base has grown then from going into the browser now that you've got uh, you've opened up the operating systems to you know Mac and Linux, I suppose? Absolutely, a really big one is Chrome OS. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, we have a lot of a lot of people
0: using uh, Chromebooks, and that's big in education. So, I think three years ago now, something like fifty percent of Uh, laptops used in US schools were Chromebooks. So, you know, if you want to be in the education market, you've got to be on a Chromebook. What is the platform built in
2: currently, the editor? So it's all JavaScript, HTML and CSS. So, So you mentioned WebAssembly earlier for the physics. Yes. Are there any ambitions to move on to move the platform itself onto WebAssembly? Because I think that is just is just native i'm doing air quotes there for the listeners native web but on steroids you know the kind of performance you get the sort of stuff that you can do is there have you got your eyes set on WebAssembly, or is is the physics stuff a, a foray into that like anything around there
0: it's a very interesting technical question and there's a lot of uh, fairly difficult trade-offs involved in that in short it might not necessarily be faster if you go to all that trouble, JavaScript is incredibly fast these days. We've actually done benchmarks that shows it can outperform some uh, competitors with native engines. And I think that's one of those perception issues that we still deal with. People assume web stuff is slow or JavaScript is slow. And it's not. It was the case several years ago, but things have changed now. So uh, there's a, if you search the web, there's uh, some other people have done some good blog posts about the, uh, about the topic where WebAssembly can be, but isn't necessarily faster than JavaScript. And then if you write code in a different language and compile it to WebAssembly, it significantly, in, in my view, that would significantly complicate the development workflow. So now you have a compile step and you're writing code in a different language and debugging is more complicated. Whereas in JavaScript, you have, you have really great browser developer tools and there's no compiler. You just write code and it, you reload the page. So I think it's an interesting idea and it's good for things like the physics engine, but I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to broaden that out into everything else especially when you've already got JavaScript code
2: yeah no I, I agree I think um I look at things like Figma and look at that because that's built in WebAssembly and I think the the sort of functionality there is not necessarily faster it's more so what is what is capable what what are we capable of of, of doing within WebAssembly and I'm just baffled at some of the stuff we can we can do with that so so no no ambitions there no um no goal to move move over because that that means new hires then right that means you gotta you gotta hire new developers. Well, that, that's
0: part of the thing is if you want to be productive, really you want a shallow technology stack, and I, I'm a big believer in simplicity and having as few moving parts as you possibly can. It, it simplifies it, it makes you more productive, and it makes it easier to make sure things work. So I don't think when we don't have any ambition to sort of compile the entire engine to WebAssembly. But there may be bits and pieces. So WebAssembly is good for picking off a component which needs maximum performance, like a physics engine, and uh, just being used for that and integrating with JavaScript. So you know, if we added a, a new feature which needed like a really high performance, like single bit, uh, that could work in WebAssembly. But again, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be that JavaScript would, would be perfectly good for that.
2: So before we close it off and, and talk about the future of, of gaming i have one more question about your your store your app store if you, I don't know if you want to call it that but like how do you how do you um maintain quality control of the games if anything is is it kind of anyone can just upload and that's it or do you have a review process that you go through
3: the biggest quality control we have is we charge a small fee to be able to sell in the app store so we're not overwhelmed and that's that small barrier there means that if people aren't willing to pay the fee, they don't think they're going to make that much money. So that's that's the number one quality control. Then we do have a review process. You can Once you're in, you can submit as many assets as you want, and we have a sort of quick look over it and, and just say, yeah, that's good to go.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. So... Where do you stand? Where do you see the future of these types of platforms, these types of products that that you, you, the editor that you built, and things like that? What are you seeing on the horizon in in your vertical? I think the web is an incredible
0: technology platform, and in the past ten years, it's transformed completely. And I think it's already capable of running most software and most games perhaps not the very top sort of 3D graphically intensive games, but it can do an awful lot, an awful lot of content out there could run on the web. And probably doesn't, I think that there's a lot of complex things about software, the software world, but I think part of the problem is the perception is behind on that. And I think over the next 10 years, we'll see the perception start to catch up. And I think there's also a commercial incentive for more things to move to the web Uh, because of the app store fees. And so I think the web is the best hope against um, fighting back against those fees. If more people can make web apps, web content, and monetize them, that's the uh, important thing, then that will be a a brighter future for the technology world, I think.
3: I think in app vertical specifically as well, I think... um... I see a lot of our competitors sort of added HTML5 exports in their platform sort of as an afterthought, sort of unwilling afterthought. And we're sort of dragging dragging them along a little bit. And I think they will realize in the future the importance of the web and they'll be putting more focus into sort of supporting web technologies
2: nice and then finally the future of uh, future of your platform then have you got any tidbits that you can share divulge of any upcoming features or or launches that you've got planned
0: well um i think i can sort of hint at something might be coming up in the next uh, couple of months after talking about potential spin-offs and how we're not doing them <laughs> we're we're going to do one <laughs> <laughs> That was a quick turnaround. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the thing is, uh, we've been we've been in business for like 10 years. And so this is the first time, uh, that whole time, we were just focusing on Construct uh, for game creation software. And we think Construct has uses outside of game creation as well. And so we think there's a good opportunity to spin off uh, Construct for another kind of market. And hopefully we'll be making an announcement in the next uh, couple of months about that. Um, so stay tuned. And uh, yeah, we think we can do that in a way which both adds a lot of value and is not a total nightmare for us to maintain. So it's not a completely different kind of product, which is going to make our lives really hard for having to maintain two different things. It's like a a kind of a subset of the product addressed at a new market. So uh, that's something we'll have uh, coming along soon.
3: And it's a big step it's a big step for us because uh you know like talking adding your first employee sort of adding your second product is is similar you know similar challenges similar problems so we're very excited and it's, it's a big step for us
2: well on that bombshell <laughs> i'd like to thank you <laughs> tom and ashley for your time it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and uh yeah i've got my eyes on uh, on the future of construct
3: it's great talking to you both really enjoyed it thank you very much
2: yeah thanks for having us
1: Well, I hope you can tell that we really enjoyed that episode. It was great to have Tom and Ashley come on the show. And we love Construct 3. Yeah, pretty good. Really good. Well, with that, thanks for tuning in. And if you enjoyed
2: the episode, then of course, you can show your support by giving us a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to. Uh, subscribe to catch the next episode and support the show on buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show or one word. That's buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show to show
1: your support to give us money
2: (laughs) (laughs) was that too threatening
1: (laughs) if that's not clear enough